A reading from Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus, Jesus himself came near and went with them. What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? And he asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty indeed and word for God and all the people, and how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Moreover, some woman in our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and told us, they had seen a vision of angels that said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is nearly over. So we went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? That same hour they got up returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. A major lesson that I've learned in life is when you've difficult things to work out or maybe to come to terms with, one of the best ways to do this is to go for a walk to put on your boots and get out there. And maybe it's the exertion, maybe it's the rhythm, maybe it's the movement, maybe it's the change of perspective, but all of these things help. I used to work with teenagers, and I remember one, I remember distinctly one afternoon walking for miles around Castle Welland Lake with a lad that I'll call Stephen. Stephen's sister had just died of an accidental drug overdose. And we walked and walked and walked, sometimes in silence, 
sometimes talking, trying to make sense of what frankly was impossible to make sense of. However, somehow walking seemed the right thing to do. I remember when my best friend died six years ago, this just urge to walk, to get out of the house, to do something physical, to come to terms with what had happened. And in many ways, that process of walking exercised or exercised the pain I was experiencing. In our passage, Cleopas and his companion are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're journeying physically, but they're also journeying emotionally. They're walking to Emmaus, and they're trying to process the terrible things they've just experienced in Jerusalem. The events around Jesus' death and his crucifixion. And they've not just lost a friend, they've lost their leader, their teacher, their rabbi. And we hear that others remained in Jerusalem. There were rumors that Jesus had risen from the death and had come from his tomb. However, Cleopas and his companion want to walk away, as they say in the Westerns, to get out of Dodge and back to Emmaus. And the road back to Emmaus, it's about seven miles. And I think if we think from here to Lisburn via the towpath, it's not a long walk, but it's long enough to get into deep conversation. And I've no doubt that after the events of Jesus' crucifixion, that's what they must have talked about. When any of us experience a traumatic event, those circumstances hold our attention and conversation always comes back to it. And for these two, life as they'd known it with Jesus had changed. We'd never be the same again. The day I walked with Stephen round Castlewell and Lake, the memories flowed. The times he'd enjoyed with his sister and some of the hard times too. And just as these two companions walked, surely they shared their memories of Jesus. The miracles. Do you remember when he fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread? Now, was it five loaves and two fish, or was it two loaves and five fish? And the day he healed Jairus' daughter, or the stories he told. Do you remember he told the one about the prodigal son? But I loved the one about the lost coin. No doubt they talked about how he'd sailed too close to the wind and upset the Pharisees one too many times. No doubt there were tears. The strong and clear guiding voice of Jesus had been silenced. What they'd committed their lives to had been abruptly ended. Not only had Jesus died, but their hopes that he was the one who would set Israel free had died with him. Jesus' non-violent resistance, in the end, had been snuffed out by that heinous form of violence, crucifixion. And now they're in a place of confusion and concern. And maybe we feel the same. We've been following Jesus. We've our own idea of how things should have worked out as disciples of him. But as all of us come to learn, it rarely pans out that way. 
Maybe it feels God has left us. Maybe it feels God's left us when we experience family members who get sick and just don't get well. Maybe we feel God's left us when the cost of living keeps going through the roof. So we wince when we get to the till at Tesco. And at the back of our minds, we're thinking how we'll heat the house through the winter. Maybe we feel God has left us faced with a government that thinks it's okay to ship people to Rwanda. Maybe we think God has left us when a nine-year-old is stabbed in Lincolnshire. Maybe at times we're all on that road to Emmaus, struggling to see where God is in the midst of hardship, feeling God has left us. And I think this hiddenness can be very painful and unbearing. And we can have question, questions and have doubts. And there have been times in my life, and I'm sure in yours, when we're just beset with fear and anxiety and full of unanswerable questions. And you don't know if things are really work out. And we think, where are you, God? What am I to do next? And I think our travellers to Emmaus must have had similar questions. But something miraculous happens to them on the road. In verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus, the one they are desperately missing, the one they are longing for, joins in the final miles. It's Jesus, but they don't know it's him. And he starts off as a bit of a nuisance. Do you know when you're having a deep and meaningful conversation, the last thing you want is to be interrupted. There's some nosy parker to jump in and say, what are you discussing with each other as you walk along? That's exactly what he did in verse 17. And Jesus pretends he's no idea what's happened in Jerusalem. So Cleopas and his friend have to fill in the details. Jesus walks beside them journeys with them, and he moves from being a nuisance to being a gift. And I think there's a sense of playfulness and curiosity in Jesus. He plays dumb and teases out their story, gets them talking and shares in their deep hurt. Grief can isolate us. We can close in on ourselves, shut people out, But Jesus enters into their tragic life experience and asks, what's going on? Let me hear how you've been broken. He gives the gift of attention, simply to listen to their story. Notice how he doesn't rush to bring them to the conclusion and end their pain and distress. Something he could have done easily. He goes slowly. There's a Japanese theologian. I don't really read a lot of Japanese theologians, but there is one called Kosoki Kayami in his book. And his book's called Three Mile an Hour God. And he says the average speed humans walk is three miles an hour. Jesus, who is God, is walking at three miles an hour. Koyama says love has a speed and that speed is slow. 
that speed is gentle, that speed is tender. To walk well with Jesus, we must slow down to more manageable and slower pace. Notice how ever so gently Jesus connects their story with the great story of history. In verse 26, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Cleopas and his companion actually come to enjoy Jesus' presence and company. And when they get to Emmaus, they invite him in, ask him to stay the night. They welcome the presence of Jesus. And then the big reveal. I love this bit. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And I love this paradox. Like they thought Jesus was absent, but he was actually there. When we think God is absent, can we be open to the possibility that he's actually there? If we take time to notice, to slow down, to notice the times that our heart burns. There's a lovely story about a little boy who wanted to meet God. And he knew it was a long trip to where God lived. So he packed a suitcase And a good Irish boy, he brought potato crisps and a supply of coke. And when he got about half a mile, he saw an old woman. And she was sitting in the park just staring at some pigeons. The boy sat down next to her and opened his suitcase. He was about to take a drink from his coke. Then he noticed the old lady looked hungry. So he offered her a packet of potato. She gratefully accepted and smiled to him. Her smile was so pretty, the boy wanted to see it again. So he offered her a Coke. Again, she smiled and the boy was delighted. They sat there all afternoon, eating and smiling, never saying a word. And it grew dark and the boy realized how tired he was. He got up to leave. But before he'd gone more than a few steps, he turned and ran back to the old woman and gave her a hug. She gave him the biggest smile that she'd given all day. When the boy opened the door to his house a short time later, his mother was surprised by the look of joy on his face. She asked him, what made you so happy today? And he replied, I had lunch with God. But before his mother could respond, he added, you know what? She's got the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. Meanwhile, the old woman, also radiant with joy, returned to her house. And her son was stunned by the look of peace on her face, a face that was usually set with pain and disappointment. Mother, what did you do today that made you so happy? I ate tater crisps in the park with God. 
However, before her son responded, she added, you know, he's much younger than I expected. Might we be open to the possibility that we might encounter God in the most ordinary aspects of our life? Not just at those big apex or zenith moments, not just big events like Sunday worship or Christian festivals, but we can meet God in the daily, daily grind of our lives. Can we be open that Christ might use every situation and circumstances to show his presence to us? C.S. Lewis wrote, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. I left my work about seven years ago to look after Rosa. It was probably a promotion, actually. So it was <laughs> to become a stay-at-home dad. And do you know what? It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. I used to joke with friends, that'll be me now, me and Philip Schofield, a kid playing in the corner. I didn't realize actually how much of a sense of identity I'd lost from, from leaving my job, what I did for a living. And it actually hit my self-esteem and confidence. And I remember a few months into my new role, walking through Botanic Park, feeling flat, pretty tearful and lonely. Kind of questions like, who am I? Is this really what I'm meant to be doing? And there's an internal voice going on in my head saying, you're lazy, you're a waste of space. And in my frustration, I asked God, rather angrily, what am I meant to be doing here? I walked on, turned the corner, and this elderly couple approached, kind of shuffled up to me, looked and stopped. And the man made to speak, and he said one thing. He said, son, you're doing the most important job of your life. Then they just shuffled on. And he didn't know me, didn't know my circumstances, didn't know the place my mind had been just moments before, but his words satisfied a deep need in me. He was Christ speaking to me. He was walking incognito. My heart burned as he spoke. Thomas Merton wrote, every moment and every event of a person's life on earth plants something in their soul. For just as the wind carries thousands of winged seeds, so each moment brings with it gems of spiritual vitality that come to rest in the minds of people. Most of these seeds perish and are lost because we're not prepared to receive them. Each one of us is important to God. Each of our lives, however difficult, mundane, disappointing, are the place where God meets us. God isn't removed from what we feel is a messy world. And I think the task isn't so much about getting out of the mess to find God, but like these travelers to a mess, finding God in the midst of what feels like disorder. We follow a living God who created this earth and all in it, 
And we can be confident that God isn't distant up in heaven, but meets us in our day-to-day experience through people, through events, through our moods, if we notice. So how do we begin to notice? How do we begin to notice God's presence in daily life? And thankfully, there's someone in the Christian tradition who's got some helpful ideas about this. Ignatius of Loyola wrote, one should practice seeking God's presence in all things, in conversations, walks, all that one sees, tastes, and hears. And Ignatius emphasized to the Christians in his charge the importance of living reflectively, and even helped them by devising a prayer to help them do this. And he really believed that if we took time to notice and slow down, we could see God is present in our lives in lots of different ways. Ways that often pass us by in our busyness. Dennis Ham was later to call this prayer, it's called the Examine, rummaging for God. He said it's like going through a drawer of stuff. We all have a drawer of stuff out in the garage, you know, where there's stuff just lying around. And the thing must be there that we need. He says our days are like that. We should go through the contents of our day, rummaging around, looking where God might be present and trying to find him. So this prayer called the Examine, it's just a helpful way to know and to notice where God has been at work in our lives. So how do we do it? Well, if I was to teach you to dance, I would have to take you onto the dance floor and I wouldn't give you a handbook. Just like with prayer, the best way to learn is to do it. So for the next five minutes, we're going to do that. So I'd ask you just to settle yourselves in your seat and just close your eyes. I'm going to light a candle. And in lighting this candle, we're asking for God's light. to reveal to us how he sees us, not how we see ourselves. To know God, to know how God sees us and not how we see ourselves. The first thing Ignatius suggests that we do is to approach God with gratitude. Because gratitude is the foundation of our relationship with God. Maybe to think of the ways he's been generous to us. And I'm going to suggest you just play through or walk through yesterday, Saturday. Maybe we recall some concrete things to be thankful for. Food on the table a cup of water, might be laughter, conversation with a friend. These things we so often take for granted. 
but God is in all the details. And there's much to be grateful in all our lives. Maybe just notice one or two things you're grateful for yesterday. The next thing Ignatius suggests that we do is begin to notice the feelings that we've had throughout the day. Our feelings positive and negative, painful and pleasing, are clear signs of where God was present. Looking back, can we notice where God showed up in our day? Where did I feel true joy yesterday? What troubled me? What challenged me? Where did I notice God's presence? Was there a moment when your heart burned within you? And often as we make this prayer, we'll notice things that we're not happy about. It'd be ways that we've acted that separate us from God. And we take a moment, if those come up, to acknowledge them and ask for forgiveness. And while we take this moment to look back, we're aware that in a few moments we step out into the world. We look back to look forward. Cleopas and his companion turned around, went back to Jerusalem when they encountered Christ. So what we notice today helps us as we step into the rest of this day. We allow it to throw light into the future. So the rest of Sunday opens before us with great hope and energy. We move forward with a sense of life and vigor. And step by step, we trust God will open the way for us as we follow him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.